Wow. Uh, I've done that a few times uh, in my office at home as we did these virtual uh, events over the pandemic. Thinking about it, it's almost been two years uh, since we've wow. done one here. So thank you for being here and um, keeping us company and being part of this conversation. Um, yeah, why not? Um, we are going to take questions about halfway through, or if you don't want to come up to the mic, you can also tweet them at the City Club, and they'll be sent to me as well. I'll try to weave those through uh, throughout this conversation. Uh, so as we begin, I'd like our panelists just to introduce yourselves and maybe give a few thoughts on what happened yesterday. Were you surprised by, by what happened or maybe the margins by which they happened? Uh, Ron, you want to start? Hello, my name is Ron Calhoun, and I am the publisher of the Cleveland Observer, and I was not surprised by yesterday. Uh, just from going to so many community meetings and understanding what the, what the vibe was around the city, uh, it just indicated from the primary what was going to happen in the general. Mm. Crystal. Sure. So good evening. My name is Crystal Bryant. I serve as the executive director for our Cleveland branch of the NAACP. I am ecstatic about what happened yesterday. Um, I am surprised, regardless of the numbers, it has been times where people were polled, we've seen people lead and they could turn around um, out of fear mongering and different tactics and I'm just happy that that didn't win this time. Daniel. Good evening everyone, Daniel Ortiz, I'm Outreach Director at Policy Matters Ohio. I'm, I'm with you, I, uh, I was happy, you know, I was very happy um, with the results and Honestly, uh, when it comes to turnout, that was something I was thinking about a lot this morning. Um, you know, mayor-elect Bibb received, you know, roughly 63% of the support, but, you know, with 23% turnout, that still leaves a large gap of folks that he needs to work on building trust with, uh, folks who didn't vote for him, people who didn't vote. So uh, I think that there's a lot of work ahead, but I'm excited to, to see how this administration does it. If we can stay on that, before we get into a lot of big issues that uh, Mayor-elect Bibb is going to face, 23% turnout. I mean, these elections are not often big turnout elections, but this was consequential in Cleveland, and still we have most of the uh, voting public not participating. So maybe can you talk more about that, Ron and Crystal, about... Yeah, bringing in, like Daniel said, the people who didn't participate and convincing them that this is their process as well. Well, I think it's an indication of frustration. People are just fed up and they don't think it's going to make a difference, so they don't vote. But I always said, even before the election, whoever gets in, people are going to have to be engaged and they're going to have to hold whoever's in office accountable. So. Yeah, the numbers were low, but I think my advice mm -hmm. to uh, Mayor-elect Bibb is to don't stop canvassing. Continue to, to work his canvas uh, across the city, because he's got to make those connections and make people, galvanize people to be engaged. Mm -hmm. Crystal? So, I mean, this, this is right to have a happy dog conversation because you can have an honest conversation. Please, <laughs> yeah, and all the way honest. Yeah, and I'm, I might curse a little bit, so if I <laughs> drop a couple bombs, I, I'm speaking on my own behalf, not any organization that I am affiliated with. Disclaimer. So, disclaimer. <laughs> disclaimer. Um, I was happy when I seen who my colleagues were that were sitting on the panel with me because they're the data men. And I read the data, but that's not how I speak, right? You are, you are 
for certain rooms, and this is my kind of room. So when we think about voter turnout, I think um, Dan will probably spit some really good facts and numbers for you throughout this discussion. But the reality of it is this. We often think that folk are dumb, that our community doesn't understand what's going on, or that they don't care and they don't see the issues. I come from East Cleveland, born, bred, and raised. I know plenty of people in East Cleveland that absolutely see the poverty, they see the crime, they see the unfair tactics in policing. They don't like it, but people don't know what to do about it. And they have a hard time connecting those issues to voting. Therefore, they often are not civically engaged. Or because they simply think, well, no matter who's in the space, would that really make a change? So they often feel hopeless because of the people that are there and sworn to represent them. They don't trust them. They feel like nothing's being done. And they cannot connect it all in terms of information. So a lot of it is a lack of information that we're bringing to community. A lot of it is disempowerment, not allowing them to feel like they have a right to participate in this space, that they have a voice in this space. And it is also producing shitty candidates. So like, what we found that Dan will likely talk about a little later is um, in some data gathering that we did this particular election, is that often we who are all very civically engaged or in this space and do this for work or our jobs or for our passion, we are willing to pick the less of the two evils. When our, our average citizen is like, F that, I'm not doing that. If you give me somebody to actually pick from, you'll see them turn out. So I mean, I, I think that's one space that we should make sure we reflect on this evening. Thanks for the question. Yeah, that's a, that's a good point. And I often say to people that not voting is a political act as well. It's showing that the system is not communicating to those voters something that they value, right? Um, that makes this so interesting about issue 24, to pivot right there, because Marilek Bibb says uh, police and uh, violent crime, that's going to be one of the first things he's going to tackle when he comes in. Uh, issue 24 passes by a similar margin that he won the election. That is a community-led initiative saying we reject what we have been told by the current administration. We are imposing a different way to think about it. So there's some civilian um, participation driving the system themselves. Maybe, Ron, you want some thoughts and then Daniel. Well, first of all, you know that this isn't new. There's over 200 of these uh, civilian committees across the country. The teeth in it is the 4% that are actually, there's, there's three different models. The first model is investigative, and they do the same thing that an internal affairs type division in the police would do. The second is the review and recommend. They recommend policy or recommend the discipline, and whether it gets done or not is up to the established, the, the system. The Cleveland uh, Commission is, is, is going to, I'm sorry, committee is going to be, they're going to have teeth. They're going to be able to administer discipline. They're going to be able to fire folks. That's the, that's the meat of it, and that's why you, ha you had such a campaign against it. Because that's not status quo. Hey, no. I'll just build off of what both Crystal and Ron said. Uh, you know, I think we're at a point where we're, we're starting to see, like you just said, um, accountability to the community, right? And that is so key. When we look at, you know, what are the reasons why we see, you know, 23% turnout in the city of Cleveland, you know, we partnered with our friends at, at Cleveland Votes. We did a poll to investigate some of this. We looked at folks' attitudes. You know, people who are you know, low turnout, but I think high potential voters, right? Like these are the folks that you have to work on making that connection, making that impact clear. 
And I think we just saw that. When we see issue 24 passing, we see folks making that connection of what they can do to have their voice heard and why voting matters. Now, we can continue to go further than that, right? We're talking about, you know, community voice. We just saw that as well with Clevelanders for public comment, bringing public comment for the first time in nearly 100 years to the city of Cleveland. But I think we can even push beyond that and start looking at what is, you know, community choice. And this is where conversations that, you know, Mayor-elect Bibb, when he was candidate, Justin Bibb, embraced the PB CLE participatory budgeting initiative and signed on to that letter. And that's something that is a big signal to folks that, you know, we want to, to take that, you know, uh, city organizational chart and let's bring the residents of the city of Cleveland more fully into that. Let's bring resident voice and resident choice to the forefront. To, to stay with policing here, Crystal, um, if, if, let's say, Police Chief Calvin Williams is replaced, as looks like might happen, and there are serious reforms in City Hall around policing just the management of the division of police, how do you change the culture of the department itself? Because it seems like having this accountability, that's one step, but then you also need to drag, perhaps, a lot of people who don't want to participate in this process along with, um, and the, the division of police is vital to this city and keeping this city safe. So how do we balance that, do you think, and can you talk about that challenge for the mayor-elect trying to, to lead that process? I don't think that it's just Justin's job to change the culture of our city. Um, I think we just got through, or Dan just got through mentioning, it is the responsibility of the collective. The collective is everybody in this room. This is your democracy. And so one person is not coming to save you. Whether it's a president, a mayor, or a governor, we have to have accountability, but we have to have solutions and ideas to keep us all focused. There's nothing, um, I guess, it, if I can put it like in the simplest way, it's not anything necessarily wrong with the structure that we have. It's usually something wrong with the people. And so, unfortunately, Justin may not have the opportunity to have the full leadership or the full force of power that the other mayors have had to even see what he was capable of doing. But I think this type of leadership, when we think about um, the culture change, starts at the top. So if he decides to make them some decisions at the top, they ought to enforce other things and they, they let their membership know what's going to be allowed and what's not going to be allowed. And you also have to think about as a community, what is our culture? How do we get on one accord with seeing things uh, respectively in terms of human rights? Stop being so divisive about race. Uh, we, we all have to get on one accord, hold each other accountable, and make sure we support him if we want to see a successful city. We have so much infighting, we can't accomplish anything, so we have to be real about it being collectively our democracy. Uh, Ron, where does the police contract come into this? Because we often heard from Frank Jackson that it all comes down to arbitration. Even if he wanted to do something, he couldn't do it. Um, is uh, Mayor-elect Bibb going to face new challenges with that, or does he have new tools maybe with this? Well, first let me digress to, yeah. to, <laughs> to, to, to your original, your, your first question. Not only does it come down to the collective being responsible, us as, as citizens, as residents, it comes down to a very grassroots level, family. I have to start with me first. Self-policing starts with me. Am I going to do the right thing? Am I going to... Uh, uh, check myself when I know I'm, I'm doing the wrong thing. And then it goes to family. And then it goes to community. And then it goes to leadership. That, that's, the, that, that's the grassroots level of really self-policing. And do we absolutely need police? 
Well, I'm 67 years old. I remember a time when we had volunteer firemen. Hmm. So if we have to police, self-police ourselves because the police want to pick up and leave, I guess, I guess that's what it's going to come down to. Now, getting back to your question. How, how does he, how does he, I'm, I'm sorry, what was the original question? <laughs> <laughs> he forgot too. Huh? <laughs> now, so we, we pivoted to the police contract, right? Yeah, because oh yes. there, there are these obstacles where the police will mm -hmm. just not accept a decision and then fight back. Okay, so the contract is coming up in March. That's probably his second email. The first email is HR saying, where do we direct deposit your salary? Mm -hmm. <laughs> the, the second email is going to be, from the law director saying, we are going to have to negotiate this contract. And we're going to have to negotiate this contract different than before because of this, this issue 24 passing. All right, so the police has already drawn a line in the sand. We're going to sue. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. The bottom line is the law says you've got to play fair in the sandbox. And we need to hold them accountable to, to play fair in the sandbox. That's on us. Once we identify who's holding up the price, that's been the problem over the last 15 years. We as a community don't find out what's going on until we got to do something about it right now. And, and if we don't take this opportunity right now, we're going to lose the opportunity. Well, no, we need transparency. We need it up front so we can understand what's going on and make a decision that's best for the entire collective. Yeah, transparency is a big part of it. Also, just a functioning government, right? Yeah. Um, the, the structure of government that communicates with the population, a website that works, I mean, that's a, that's a low bar, right? But um, it matters, those things matter because that's how the government is interfacing with the community, right? So, Crystal, maybe, do you wanna talk about reforms in city services and just how, how the city needs to interact with the population to fulfill core duties of, of a city? Sure, I mean, Here's the thing, I think that people ignored Justin throughout this entire, like, up until like the primary where he won, because he wasn't the combative candidate, but he was always the candidate that actually had a plan. I didn't hear anybody talk about how they planned on impl implementing and operationalizing the work, where they would pull money from, how they would create a budget, nothing. He has actual solutions. And so, you know, working outside of government, this is actually my first job outside of government in 18 years. I was in county government in different capacities, mm -hmm. and I've heard other candidates challenge him and say he was unexperienced, he didn't know what it really took, but the reality is he absolutely knows what it takes. To me, he was the most qualified candidate, so I'm very excited because of all his work in different cities and just not here. Cleveland is a tough place. We had a study come out that was commissioned maybe a year or so ago, and this is one of the hardest places for black women to thrive. And so I feel like sometimes we are a community that's not honest about what we are, really are, who we really are, and what we really represent. And so I'll say he has some challenges in front of him, but he absolutely has a plan for it. You have to restructure the way you do work. You have to look at the divisions. You have to do a scan of what you actually need. You have to do a scan of what your community needs in terms of technology and public safety. And usually we are, you don't need to reinvent a wheel. I promise you, you don't. People love to be the first, but you need a servient, humble leader who understands somebody has a blueprint that you can you can um, adjust and match to make it fit in your community. And I think he has all those things. And one of the most pivotal things that we have to start with is technology. We have to start with technology. Digital redlining is a real thing. And it's only a direct result of COVID that we realize how critical it is even to our children. I don't have broadband access. I'm in Ward 6. I pay the same amount as anybody else 
in a different community, but it kicks out and I can barely work from home. That's a serious issue, it's a necessity. So just looking at sometimes it is the basics when you're in a rebuilding phase, and it also takes time. We have to have patience, we have to have grace, we have to have mercy, and again, we have to come in as a collective, ultimately always offering solutions. Uh, we can take that applause for you. Um, <laughs> one, one of our first questions uh, touches on something you mentioned there in your comments. Uh, what specific strategies should Mayor Elect Bibb implement now that specifically address extremely low quality of life for black women in this city? Oh my God, it's like. <laughs> teeing, teeing you up, so. You want me to like take over the whole mic? No, I'm just kidding. Um, I mean, it's, it's not just black women. It's the inequities for all peoples of, all persons of color period. And when you think about inequity, we're talking about systematic level work. If something is embedded in your system from the root for 400 years, you're not going to dissolve it overnight. And again, you're not going to have this miracle leader drop out of the sky and all of a sudden he can fix something for you. A lot of it's culture. That's why I spoke about togetherness. We talked about opportunity. We care about the same thing that everyone else care, cares about, but you have to look at the disparities that we faced. So if anybody comes in and they've attended one of those great racial equity institute trainings through Third Space Action Lab, and they talk about coming in through the second row of monopoly as the best and like quickest analogy to do it. If I come in, I'm an attorney, right? I have three degrees at this point. I have a, a decent career and a decent salary. But if I come in a game of monopoly at the second or third role, what's already gone? What they say? Tell what they say. You might come on, ad lib. Oh, <laughs> oh my goodness. No the pressure. property come on, Daniel. The property is already gone. My hype man was gone. <laughs> so at this point I can't build wealth. Yeah. Everything's already gone. So what am I doing? I'm paying rent or I'm going to jail. No. Those are our options. I have, I'm a single mom, I have a son, like I want him to have opportunities. I live on 97th, at the end of my, at the end of my street, I don't know if you guys have ever seen Lean On Me, it's like fucking Joe Clark. I'm not sending my son there, but I have the resources to at least get my son all the way to Campus International where other parents do not. So it's so many disparities, um, so many challenges as, as, a, as a black person, but also that we already face as women in terms of people listening to our voice, hearing us, not over-sexualizing us, seeing us as actual leaders, listening to the changes that we like to implement, giving fair opportunities in terms of workforce, equal opportunities in terms of pay. You name it, you think about every complication for a woman is double for a black woman. So he got a lot of work ahead of him, but I believe in him. <laughs> um, Daniel, there are so many things there, but like Crystal said, a mayor can't fix them all. So when we think about entrenched poverty, when we think about food insecurity, food deserts in the city, what concrete things can the mayor do and what should he be doing to at least orient the city in the right direction to be dealing with those things that haven't been done previously? Yeah, no, I think, you know, again, connecting things to polling that we've looked at, you know, we see across the board Clevelanders care about our communities, right? And we wanna, you know, continue to show up for our neighbors and move the city forward, but, it, you know, it's, it's how we get to do that and really looking at what's going to be a, a proactive vision versus a reactive vision. So, you know, when we talk about this, sometimes, you know, especially when we look at the top findings from our poll, we saw top issues being, you know, healthcare, policing and public safety, and education, right? Now, I think public safety is something that, you know, clearly is coming across here in our conversation. I'd like to spend a little time there. When we look at public safety, I think reimagining what that means, looking at, again, proactively investing and in, in making sure that, you know, folks are, you know, end jobs where they're actually, you know, making enough to thrive, right? That folks have a living wage. 
and to your point about food deserts, you know, increasingly in food policy work, food policy advocacy, we're moving away from that and talking about this in terms of food apartheid, <laughs> right? We're talking about, you know, those same issues and realizing that, you know, in a desert, a desert sustains life, right? And what we're seeing here with, you know, ways to address food apartheid is, is how do we move towards the vision of food sovereignty, right? Something that allows us to work on, you know, communally, not just bringing in the and building on our, our local assets and resources of, you know, food production of urban agriculture, right? But also investing in entrepreneurship and local ownership of the, those means of production, right? So, I mean, I think that that's a multifaceted way in which, you know, that, that food policy connect, uh, conversation connects, but also, you know, connects to work, right? And the dignity that folks can find in work. I think that there's a lot of opportunity, you know, with groups like the Northeast Ohio Workers Center, that are working to address and, and work with folks who are in, you know, disproportionately, you know, in our communities here, black and brown communities who are low-wage workers who are oftentimes, you know, facing working environments. And, and we see this. We hear so many conversations in the media talking about, you know, why are people not returning to work, right? And that conversation, I think, should also be confronted with what are the challenges of, you know, wage theft that are prevailing, you know, issues that are happening in, in a lot of, you know, the sectors that are often under the microscope of scrutiny. And also, you know, what are the fair scheduling practices that could help people, you know, more fully, you know, be prepared to have the childcare and supports necessary to make work work for them. So, you know, I think that there are so many of these issues that are also just so interconnected, right? You can't look at this, and especially a proactive vision for the city, you know, takes us looking at all these issues and the interconnections. And I really hope that the administration, you know, focuses on that the, the first 100 days. So, uh, again, I guess, what does that mean in practice, right? Because all too often from governments, what do we get? We get a task force, and then it just disappears, right? We talk about these serious issues. We know people need help. They concretely need help, tangible help today. They need food. How does this not disappear into a task force? How do we actually get action? I'm so glad that you followed up with it because I think right now the opportunities with the resources from the American Rescue Plan provide us, you know, a substantial down payment on what those investments require, right? Which is making sure that, you know, we're talking about any local jobs that are here are going to be good jobs. Any investments from that that go towards any sort of infrastructure, you know, that we're working on building, you know, in um, community benefits agreements, that we're making sure that there's a pathway towards unionization and good paying jobs long term, that we're building skills across all of our communities to make sure that those investments are, you know, hitting on all the different factors and, you know, really a down payment on the skills that are going to help Cleveland flourish, prosper, and make progress, you know, going into the future. Ron, this gets back to kind of the culture change, right? It's a people-first mindset from the city government. Absolutely. And, and when you're talking about concrete uh, ways to, to, to make change, I think it starts with resources. And there's a lot of resources in Cleveland, but there's no continuity to those resources. We have, they're siloed. This group is doing this, and they don't talk to the other group. It's kind of doing the same thing on the same path, and we don't even have leadership that goes to any of these meetings to figure out if who's effective and who's not, but that continuity part. Once we have continuity, it's a collaboration that, brings, that comes in of these resources. And that's where I think Bibbs is going to be strong, where he, can, he, he has the ear. He has this following. He has, you guys got me up here with, uh, with, with, with these uh, progressives 
and you got this old guy, I guess, to balance it out a little <laughs> bit. But I always go homeschool. How do you fix your home? How do you fix your own home? What do you need in terms of if you have some disparity or some issues at home? Take it to that level. Don't don't make it any. I'm, I'm a keep it simple kind of guy. Sure. If if my if my daughter is not being treated fairly as my son, then what resources do she need? How can I collaborate with her and nurture her and bring in training or bring in just let's love her to death? And I think that's the that's the basis of what I when I'm getting that vibe from Bibbs. He, he wants to he wants to he wants to do it the right way. Let's all do this as a community. I mean to to play devil's advocate, I guess once bitten, twice shy, right? That that people who don't have that much even agency in this system, they may be skeptical of this. And you need their buy-in to create the transformational change that you're talking about. Um, so is, is this a moment where you need to see community groups kind of jumping in early to say, we want to be part of this process, continuing process? It's not just an election. That's one set of skills. But governing is another set of skills, and you need a, a broader team, right? I, I, I pray to, to God that people don't think this is the end. We've, we've solved the problem. We've got a new, we're going to have change. No, this is just the beginning. We all have to stay galvanized. We all have to stay involved. We all, we all have to be actually supportive to him. He's going to, uh, look how many supporters he got. Look how many people jumped on the bandwagon. One of those are going to give him a phone call one day and say, hey, I need this done or that done. And he's going to need us in the background saying, no, what's best for the community? And if he has us in, in, the, in his back saying, hey, we need this, that, and the other, he can say no to that person because he's got us. He's got our support. Crystal? Um, I think there are a couple things here, right? Yeah. So. We mentioned throughout the, this talk, there are a couple reoccurring things. Transparency is one. And so the, the more transparent you are with your public and they understand what is happening or occurring in their government, the more or better off that you are when they can understand what is happening, what is not happening, why it's not happening, and a timeline in which we want to push something and move it. And so I think to Richard's point, um, we have a lot of resources here. Again, I told you I spent 18 years in county government. We are a resource-rich county. Believe that. If somebody ever tells you different, it's a lie. We waste more money on toilet tissue than you can ever imagine as employees. So what I'm offering you um, to tell you in terms of government is that it's true. We work in silos. And therefore, when you collectively put things together, you can better assess what are the gaps and what needs to be filled and how are you going to resource those gaps based off the goals that you have. And so public safety is his goal. How do you best reach that? Sometimes and not in a naive way. Like what is realistic over a certain time frame? What are our short wins? What are our long-term wins? How do we create living wages as our short-term win? But the long-term is how do we create wealth within our system and our community where not only the businesses thrive but your residents thrive? And then ultimately, how do you increase civic engagement and participation? And so some of it is door knocking. Some of it, some of it is the results that I'm showing. And some of it is ultimately the results that we are producing. So it's not rocket science. These things have been done before, but we miss it. We miss the basic, simple things of connectivity and transparency and having one entity serve as convener. Never undermine or underestimate the power of someone bringing folk together to work in collaboration in one room. 
We talk about collaboration, but I don't think we really know what that means. No one knows the outcome or the product of when you are successful. I've seen like information going around during this campaign that talked about not being like Portland. Well, I don't know when the last time you checked the West Coast out, but they got their shit together. <laughs> like, I see leaders lead. You understand what I'm saying? I see people getting what they need to have, which is critical and essential. So the resources exist. What he's talking about is a bonus because we now have all these dollars to do the things and serve all, the whole, and set things up to make things sustainable for generations to come and be fluid in those things. And that's what we have to prepare for. I think he is very much ready and prepared to operationalize things because he understands systems. He understands that this is not just about government. Government will always be a big piece of the pie that you can never slice out. But all of our systems have to speak. When we did CLE Rising three years ago, right, I don't know if you all are familiar with that, it was a whole like bottoms up kind of economic development plan that they were attempting to create. What we learned mainly is that not, not only is diversity and equity and racial equity one of your number one problems, but that most of the folk on the ground in your community doesn't even know that the resources exist. So what do they want to do? They want to go out and recreate the wheel that is already here. So we have all these resources and services that people are not connecting to. And then we have all these resources and services that the entities who are there to drive them aren't completing their mission. You don't need the mission creep. You need to perfect what you're already supposed to do. Do your job. So this is not, th this stuff is basic if we actually operationalize them as a team, bringing the right folk in the room, the right players, and going back to some bare basics that we had years ago, but elevating it through the opportunity to have technology, through using resources in terms of data, and not just assuming based off your moral stomach and your pitfalls. <laughs> so you've, you've turned over a number of people in city council as well. Do you, you've said that you expect Mayor-elect uh, Bibb to operationalize things. How do you think he's going to operate the levers of city government? Because city council can get in the way of things. It has its own priorities. Um, do, you think, do you think his inexperience in city government, not a knock, just a fact, is going to affect his relationship with city council and being able to nudge them in the direction he wants no. them to go. And here's, this is why I'll answer a no, because without you all publicly knowing Justin, I've had, I'm not just like a, a brown chili, like, oh, he's a cute black boy, I want him to win. I work with Justin. I've sat in rooms with Justin. I know he gives off the Barack Obama, and sometimes you're looking for Malcolm X. But what it really takes to create effective leadership is somewhere in between those lines. And so Justin has sat in boardrooms where he, he's had to be tough. He's had to, do you know how tough it is for a young black man to sit in a boardroom with a, a whole bunch of white executives and negotiate and get something done and leave out the room without feeling humiliated? But in fact, they, they choose him as his peer when he leaves out? That's fucking power. Like, so and when people say he's the most inexperienced, no, he was your most experienced candidate. You need to be grateful for what we just received. So when he goes into that room, he understands that sometimes the legislative body will not always be on his side. Look at our current Congress, right? They're not going to always be on your side when you walk into a room, and it takes negotiations. Sometimes you have to compromise things, but as long as you have some level of integrity, there are some things you simply cannot compromise, and I think that's why he's been able to galvanize and mobilize, what do we call them? Um, what do we call the voters, their new name? High potential voters. High potential voters. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> no, I think to that point, though, there's also, you know, the real, uh, what was really displayed in terms of bringing together a coalition, right? And I think that coalition is a winning coalition, but there's also how to transfer that. And this is where, again, you know, his commitment to ideas like participatory budgeting, where there's currently, you know, a very interesting intersection of coalition, 
Yeah, Ron, you were there just about two weeks ago. We were at Luke Easter Park, and we were doing a, a demonstration of what participatory budgeting could look like, right? And I think something like that to where you actually give, you know, folks who are infrequent but high-potential voters, you know, that hands-on, uh, you know, process where they can actually feel real power. They can feel real connection. They can make decisions on how, you know, binding decisions on how our shared resources are allocated. That is transformative. That's something that can, you know, take folks who've for too often been, you know, shut out of our government and bring them into a process that they can believe in. And it builds that trust in a real way that I think will have a ripple effect across our communities. Ron? Yeah, I, I'd agree. And, and I think that the transparency is a big piece because if those high potential voters are aware of what's really going on, if, they're, if they are uh, a, a the people that are holding up the process is ex exposed. I think the, the, the signal was sent, you know, it was, it, what they call it, a shot across the bow, mm -hmm. to all of council. If you don't fall in line, same thing that happened this general is going to happen in four years. So the decisions that they make over the next four years are going to be crucial for their jobs. And I think that's the leverage that, that's when we step in. That's when we say, okay, we, this, this guy has been elected and wants to take us to the next level. I love the data, the, the technology piece of it. But we've got people in council that are holding us up. Be transparent and tell us who is holding it up so that when that next general comes around, that general election comes around, we can get rid of them and move on. Uh, we want to open it up to your questions. If you have questions here in the dog, feel free, or you can send them, keep sending them uh, to the City Club on Twitter. I'm going to start with a Twitter question before we go live. This one is about uh, basic city services. Not sure who wants to take this one. But what are some of the things that the mayor-elect can do in the first 100 days to specifically improve public transit in the city? Any ideas? Okay, not just public transit. Well, they asked cities. about public transit. Yeah, yeah. You've got to make the people Be, happy. Yeah. Before, <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like my wife. <laughs> uh, I think bringing in the mo modernizing, modernizing Cleveland with technology is the key. Before I retire from the Cleveland Clinic, every year I got a review. Every time I touched the customer, they put out a survey. And that survey reflected what I was, whether I was effective or not. And it also affected whether I got a better raise. Those same principles can be applied to city services and to, our, and to transportation across the board. It'll change the culture in City Hall and across the city. I would Daniel. say that there's a very clear, tangible thing mm -hmm. that the administration could do. They could appoint more actual riders of public transit to the GCRTA board. That's something that the mayor's office could do right now. Yeah. yeah. Keep it simple. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thank you. Uh, first question. Yeah. To no surprise uh, from me, it's about refugees and immigrants. But we have the opportunity. I think both mayoral candidates spoke highly of our chances to improve the city if we um, made it more of a welcoming place for immigrants, refugees. Do you think this will be a priority for the Bibb administration? Any thoughts? 
I'll, I'll take a shot, right? Um, so I'll go back to the capacity that I'm currently serving in now. We are more recently just starting and championing our International Affairs Committee. Um, and we've already began to kind of reach out to Justin and have preliminary conversations about how he can support this. Now, I'm specifically talking about the state of the black diaspora, but all immigrants and refugees are important. And I want to just kind of reverse back again. I'm sure it'll be a priority for him because every constituent, every resident within the city of Cleveland is his priority. We have different issues, and then we have some aligning issues, and there are some basic things that need to be done and driven. But certainly, I think it's something that he will want to tap into because they are part of our base. They are they are part of our economic development and our workforce development, which are critical to, to creating a thriving economy and a thriving city. Now how you do that, I mean, one of the ways you can do it, again, the government isn't responsible for everything. What do you already pay? You already pay Global Cleveland to do that. What is Global Cleveland here to do? They're here to be a welcoming and a sounding board for those that come in as immigrant and refugees. And it's not supposed to be just a shit show, a collapse, and here's your ID, and this is where you go get go to the bus station. It's supposed to be something substantial. So he can think about how he allocates resources there, how he supports them in their, in their strategic planning process, and how do you make it something more tangible and inclusive for all by leverage of something that already exists in our community um, and, you know, here to really make it make, be what it's supposed to be under Joe's leadership. And Joe's a great man, but Joe can't do it alone without support and systematic work from our government. I'd like to add on to that as well. I think everything Chris just said, plus one. But I'll also say, you know, if you look at this most recent census and you see the decline in our population and you look to other comparable Rust Belt cities like Buffalo, right, where does that growth of a city like Buffalo come from? It's been a welcoming community, just like you were saying. And I think also to connect it back to investments in public transit, making sure that we have multilingual resources for anybody encountering or using our transit systems is vital. Making sure that that's modernized, again, across multiple languages is something that, you know, I think will help. It'll be interesting to watch, too. There has been kind of a cohesion between nonprofits dealing with refugees throughout the pandemic, refugee response, Catholic charities, us together, everybody's kind of been working a, a little more hand in hand, necessarily so, right? Um, next question, yeah. Hi, um, just a quick comment about public transit. Um, you know, Justin has been compared to Michelle Wu in Boston, who just won uh, both um, immigrants never, or ethnic never held office before. Her proposal was to have free public transit. And that is an idea that I think should be looked into. But I wanted to respond to um, Dan, the Policy Matters report on why people don't vote. I thought it was incredibly interesting to find that the majority reason is that they just don't have enough information. Now, so I'd like to know from you concretely, I mean, the information is out there. Yeah. Right? I mean, so. How do you get that information to people who are potentially high turnout voters? Um, I don't understand. I mean, yeah. the, the information is there. What concretely do you need to do to get them then to not only get that information, absorb it, and get them to the polls? I'm, I'm so glad that you referenced Boston um, because Boston has created a civic engagement office, and I think there's the potential for a cabinet-level role to look at how we reimagine civic engagement and make it more equitable. Right? I think when we look at this, we look at it oftentimes as the role of political parties. And honestly, that's a failing strategy for Cleveland. And if we want to reimagine civic engagement and to make it equitable, we need to look at it in a nonpartisan way. We need to look at what are the issues that bring people out to vote and that keep them engaged year-round. Because again, it's about growing an engaged citizenry that isn't just looking to November for hope and change. 
It's about how we're all taking up the active role of citizen and all making sure that our democracy is growing more robust. And we have to reinvent that. We have to put something new into that. And each generation, you know, is called upon to do that. I'm paraphrasing the late great civil rights icon, Congressman John Lewis, on this because honestly, there is so much there in terms of you know the the shoulders that we stand upon, the history that you know a city like Cleveland has made, and how we have you know stood at the forefront of leadership at different points in our city's history. We can be a city that really is a beacon for progress and prosperity again, but it's going to take all of us to get there. Thank you. Uh, one thing I wonder, especially for you on the, on the front lines here with activists and grassroots movements, it seems like over the last few years we have seen more energy behind um, civilian action. I, I think about the Q deal and then you connect that to issue 24 where there's a victory now. Is there enough energy to keep it going on other issues? Has there been a sustainable coalition built, would you say? Or are these individual moments where people kind of were fed up enough that they acted? I believe so. I believe that there is a sustainable movement. There is momentum. And I think I'm so grateful that you brought up the QDO. I think that there's you know, another arena project where we could see a push tied to how do we make you know, things better for Cleveland workers? How do we reimagine an economy that works for working Clevelanders? Again, I think that that starts with bringing a stronger enforcement mechanism around issues like wage theft, about making sure that we tie this to fair scheduling practices. If we're talking about that as an economic engine, we need to make sure that we're, we're following through on that and making good on that promise and that investment, right? Because again, when we look at the issue of wage theft, we have an enforcement office for the state of Ohio of six employees for 5.5 million you know, jobs across the whole state, that's ridiculous. You know, that's nearly a million people per, you know, <laughs> person employed in that, that right. enforcement office. So, you know, there's a lot that we could do to improve labor quality standards in the enforcement around that here in the city. And I hope that the administration does that. Yeah. Th there's a, a key word that was asked by the uh, last question, uh, person that asked the question. The information is available but is it trusted information? That's, that's a key piece of this. We, we are bombarded with information. Yeah. In fact, it's so much information, it's overwhelming. We don't know, we don't know what's true, what's not true. I, have, you ever, have you listened, I, I, call, I, I call myself a connoisseur of news, right? Okay. I, that's why I'm with the Cleveland Observer, yeah. right? And, and what I'll do is I'll ride in the car and I'll listen to my favorite stations. Then I start listening to talk radio. Then I start listening to the religious stations. Then I start reading some of Cleveland.com and Channel 5 and Channel 3, and I'm, I'm just saturated with all this information. Pace yourself, Ron. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I have to take a break Yeah. because it, it's just too much, too, too fast, and I don't know who to trust. That's going to be key. And there's something big coming to Cleveland in the next, in the next six months that's going to help us be understand and, and, and get the resources and information from a trusted site, a trusted resource, so that we don't have to disseminate all this information that's really distracting. Cliffhanger. All right. Uh, next question. Yeah. That's going to be exciting. Uh, Crystal started early saying that she was not representing her organization with some of her comments. So I'm going to ask this question and not asking you necessarily to speak for the organizations you represent, but the types of organizations you represent. So. A policy research institute 
a media enterprise to oversimplify um, uh, an organization that then AACP that's dealing with uh, racial justice and ending hatred. Uh, all of this, all the organizations do this under a umbrella of equity as well. So not speaking for your organizations, but going back to another term Crystal used, the power of the collective. How can organizations like yours in the community that are trusted, whether it's media or others, how can you partner with the City Hall, with Mayor-elect Bibb and his administration? How do you see your counterparts being in this fight with the administration, doing good work for the residents that you represent? So I guess I could start first here, okay? <laughs> um, again, I also mentioned Mission creep, just stay in your lane. How do you perfect what it is that you already do and understand how it relates to government and what government actually has the power to uh, change and not change? A part of the issue in the room is we don't even know who has the power to do what and what level of government can do what. So you expect the extraordinary to happen because you don't even understand what his job is. And you don't, sometimes you don't understand what your job is or you'll be executing it better. And so when I think about the two roles or capacities that I get to, the privilege of serving in is co-founder for Cleveland Votes and also executive director for the NAACP, a lot of it is foundation setting. And so for Cleveland Votes, for those who do not know, we are a year-round civic engagement muscle builder. And we primarily are a funder secondarily a convener. So we fund organizations with a nonprofit model to, to uh, increase voter participation and engagement year-round by connecting issues, right? So if it's a service, right? Let's say, let's say Happy Dog was a nonprofit and you wanted to come in for the service of a beer every day, right? <laughs> but we could talk about how government relates to beer, what happens if you don't have beer in your system, and I talk to you every single day. And what's more important than me talking to you every single day is that we build a relationship and we establish trust about the significance of beer and what it means to you when you come in this joint every day, right? And so that's the idea. A lot of this is about trust. We talked about algorithms and the fact that if you utilize social media, it has the ability to control every single thing you see on media. In this study that, they, that uh, Dan has referenced a couple times, the other issue with our, our voters who um, have high potential is that they don't trust the information that they are receiving. They don't trust information from social media because it's too confusing. They don't trust information from news outlets. You know who they trust? Their neighbor. You. I'm not kidding when I say you can take dollars back to the 60s. This is basic. I'm talking about if you talk to your neighbors and they think they have the one informed neighbor on the block who understands issues and they understand that their neighbor is the executive director of the NAACP, well, tell me who should I vote for? Why should I vote for them? What is this about? What are the issues? How can they connect to City Hall? That's critical in turning off the vote and build, building civic engagement year round. And how do you connect that? This study, right? We knew no, no study had been commissioned in regards to our local data in a very, very long time. This is to be public information to leverage for our mayor when he thinks about, does he want to build a civic engagement office? How does he engage with people civically? Is it important in addition to everything he has to do to consistently engage with neighbors and do door knocking and make it not just a political thing when you're campaigning, but an honor job thing as the freaking mayor, right? When we think about the NAACP, we've been around for over hundred years. You always go through changes when you have a historically old organization, especially when we're dealing with something as heavy as racism. It doesn't look the same. If this was 60 years ago and I was dialing it back, I can't be up here. I can't talk to half of you in the room. I certainly couldn't be cursing and I couldn't be confident about who I am, right? So racism begins to look different. How is the ism included in our fabric? How do we point those things out? You can't expect 
Sometimes you don't always, you get who you get in government. It'll be some people he gets to change. It'll be other people he absolutely has to stay with for a multitude of reasons. So how does he invest in what he already has? How do we feed them information as we operationalize about what inequities already exist? And how do you give that to him to create solutions or offer solutions that he can take or not take? And then do the best that we can, our ability and our mission to move the work forward and collectively talk about results. Thank you. Thank you. You can curse all you want, Crystal. <laughs> Next question. That was a little bit of a good segue <laughs> for my question. Um, so the margin of victory was like 25%, which, which suggests that there is you know, an incredible desire for significant change. But we're also talking about, in many cases, trying to unwind 16 years of uh, a situation where you know, we just haven't been doing what we've been needing to do. Um, so just wondering your comments or your thoughts about managing expectations about you know the, the pace of change in that regard um, and then while I have the floor a very second quick second question is what are your thoughts about how this election impacts who our next council president will be thank you uh, Ron you want to start well I, I think that uh, let me start with the second question first I think it's going to heavily impact because as the candidates came down to the general election you can see and, and Justin's smart enough to figure out who's an adversary and who's uh, going to cooperate. And I think the council should recognize that that was exposed, and they're going to have to be honest about who they want to lead them through the next four years. Would you agree? <laughs> if I was starting, you if I was starting with the, the second question first, mm -hmm. the one thing I've learned in gover o government over the 18 years that I had the privilege of serving mm -hmm. is your enemy today is your ally the next. Nothing's personal. This is business. Mm -hmm. And we are in the business of getting shit done for our constituency. No matter what it takes and who you have to steamroll, you have a vision ahead of you of how you want to move this land forward for the people you are here to serve. So I was never elected, but when I came into the office of reentry as the director, I knew it was a shithole that got very little resources that was smoke and mirrors because this was not a population of people that folk prioritized. Those returning home from incarceration had a disparate impact for black people of 51%. We make up 14% of the state population. We are over, we are 48% of the people incarcerated. So I knew what time it was. They gave me a budget of $3 million. That's their fucking tissue budget. I'm not kidding. Like, so what are you really going to do with that? But I'm smarter than that, right? Because I understood how to embrace the collaborative. So I think when you think about it, when it, because it's not personal and it's business, you have to look to your right and your left for your allies who have some shared goals around what you're attempting to reach. And um, you have to remember who you are serving with some level of integrity. So there are some things you simply cannot compromise, but there are other things that you must compromise. It kind of is what it is. Remember that government is a business too. And I think that, you know, to the, to the first question, I think that you have to have grace and mercy in terms of speed. This is like any job. If you came on board and you, you hadn't understood, what you, you hadn't done a scan yet of who your employees was, you may know the divisions, but you don't know every internal intricacy and you don't have the power, the executive authority, to turn everything. I would say in the first 90 days, you have to get a grace and mercy of just kind of scanning internally what I'm working with and a full year to be able to present 
real plans that are substantial and think about how you move them and fund them. We like things at lightning speed as Americans. That is something we collectively have in common and we often forget we are all Americans and have a certain culture. Um, but I think if we are realistic about what this is going to take, it takes a real plan and time and we don't like to give it that and then so quickly we want to boot the next person out and come in with somebody else that offers you bullshit because you didn't give the person time to build and substantiate and create something that is growth opportunity. So grace and mercy and you know, make your make your your enemies could be your ally the next day. All right, all right. I'm gonna start with question one first, <laughs> <laughs> just to be different. Uh, I think you know the speed at which this is gonna happen. You know, I think things are gonna move at the speed of trust, and I say that knowing that you know the Bibb administration has a unique uh, advantage in in the the mandate. I think that came with that margin. I would also encourage the administration to be clear about sharing their vision from now until, you know, throughout this lame duck period. I think there's a lot that could be done to continue to mobilize the coalition of support that they built to also bring in other organizations that could, you know, help further uh, add some of the, the details to the plans that were articulated throughout the campaign. And then I think to the second part in terms of, you know, council and council leadership, back to that first response. It's going to move at the speed of trust. Mm -hmm. And I think how that you know, coalition of, of leadership across council comes together is going to be something that will be informed by the information of, you know, when they make that vote in January. So. Thank you. Did you have a question? Yeah, final question. Go ahead. Ah. All right, I better, I better be good here. You're about to bring it I'm here to, I'm, I'm here to even up the odds, you know, uh, I got a couple of years on you. Oh, okay. So I'm here to even the whole demographic. Appreciate now. that. And it was, it was an interesting demographic. I've been, I was with them from the beginning, and I was, uh, uh, you know, from many standpoints, the minority in the room, including at the watch party last night. But uh, happy to do it. It was great. And I bet everybody he'd win by at least ten. I got a lot of drinks coming. Ten points. I got a lot of drinks coming. I'm just gonna sit here all night, actually. So this is inboxes. The biggest inbox, I've talked to Justin about this a lot, is keeping the uh, police together while we're transitioning to reform. We got, and uh, I a disclosure, I'm on the Cleveland Police Federation, which a foundation, which is not a police advocate, it's neutral between the police and the community. But there are a lot of police that are gonna retire, and there are not a lot of, uh, uh, candidates coming in. So we're in a crunch anyway, and now we've got 24 and we don't know what's going to happen. So how do you as a mayor, it's in your inbox, it's, he's, he's dealing with it, he dealt with it the first thing he said last night. How do you keep things in check and in balance, somehow motivate the police, the leadership, people on the ground, while you're moving towards equity? Because it's 60% white, 40% black and Latino in a city that's about 80% black. So, you know, you're not gonna do that overnight to your points about it ain't gonna happen right away, but you gotta keep everything together while it's happening. That's inbox one. Inbox two, many a mayor, I remember Kucinich, a lot of you wouldn't, some of you would maybe, <laughs> but he put the Gradina <laughs> sisters in charge of the airport, the twins, they're 24 years old. First snowstorm, airport shut two weeks, everything shut down. Well, they basically put signs up for it. So a new mayor has to appoint hundreds of people right away. I mean, not immediately, but six months, three to six, and that makes all the statements in the world. Who's in these positions? Who's on the Charter Commission? Who's dealing with finance? 
who's dealing with these major issues, safety. Right. So how would you, as an inbox item, recommend that Justin Bibb deal with that? And thirdly, real quickly, it's the same thing, and it's right down the street. I think about Sean here with the Happy Dog. Incredible place. Some places were incredible, just shut down, they never reopened. Um, he had the guts to stay open with his team. George down the street at the Astoria, a lot of you have probably been there, told me he dealt with 72 different city items to put windows and an awning in the outdoor deck next to his building. It took him two years. A weaker person would have given up. The city is not business friendly. Jobs, 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 business friendly, answering calls, dealing with cutting through things and letting businesses get open. Not illegally or the wrong way, but it's been a real pain. So you got police, you got intake of people, and you got really changing the action and culture on getting people to invest here. If that guy, George, down the road, decided not to stay, he gave up on it, that's a major linchpin place on this street now, as is the happy dog. So those are three areas. I'm glad it was the last question. I, I bow out. <laughs> wow, that was a wow. big one. All right. Who wants to get some of that? I want to start with, yeah. this be confusing, question two, then three, then one. It doesn't <laughs> matter. It doesn't matter. Go for it. <laughs> I think that, you know, the headlines that have come out across this you know about this race especially nationally you know they're talking about the big herculean task ahead of the Bibb administration you know cleveland is the poorest big city in the country right there's a challenge and you're going to have to look at staffing that with folks who are committed committed dedicated and ready for that type of challenge and i think that there are going to be a lot of people actually who are going to step up for that i think that we're in a moment where folks are seeing the real potential with cleveland and i, I think in terms of staffing you know there is a window, but I'm sure that there is already with the, again, coalitions, the support for the campaign. There are people who are probably very eager to, to make sure that they step up and, and serve the city that way. I think in terms of question three, and I'm, let me see if I'm remembering my question order, but uh, uh, <laughs> see that was, you know, when we're looking at the impact on businesses and jobs, you know, that really is, there is, I think some discretion within, you know, the American Rescue Plan funds. If we're looking at, you know, the, the four key ways in which those resources could be used, you know, the top one is to respond to negative impacts, negative economic impacts because of the COVID crisis. And I think, you know, there's some clear lines of specifically, you know, some broader discretion around census tracts with high poverty, which again, Cleveland is the poorest major US city, which there are many, many tracks. But we, I'm not sure if this is one of those tracks, but we can look up that information. The administration could look up that information and figure out how you can use some of that for small business investments and making sure that businesses can actually take care of their employees and make them whole. So I think that there are tools there in that toolkit. It's just finding the right folks you know, connecting it to question two, and then question one, I don't remember, but I'm sure it was good. <laughs> <laughs> if, if I could respond, I think that um, anytime you have a, a breakdown in an institution, organization, government, whatever, it, it comes down to processes and procedures. Mm -hmm. If you have processes and procedures in place, and you work those processes and procedures, and then turn around, and give it some time, and then reevaluate tweak, reevaluate, tweak, at some point, you're going to get some, some buyout out of, that, out of those, that process. And I think that's the first obstacle. If he hits the ground running 
if they don't have, and, and, and it's pretty, a pretty good indication right now, we don't have a lot of processes and procedures that work in City Hall. So d during this lame duck period, if he can, and, and, and let, me, let me just qualify that. The Cleveland Observer is a solutions-based media platform. We find the topics, we go across the country and find a solution. We don't reinvent the wheel. We don't suggest this or that or what we think data or whatever is, is, is the solution. Where it's working somewhere else, we publish that. Sure. Same thing, can, that same model can be applied here. And, and in terms of business, in terms of structure, processes, even, even during my military tour, if it wasn't for processes and procedures, I wouldn't be here today. So that's a key piece of it. Right. Crystal? So I think like piggybacking off both of these gentlemen, right, you have to do a scan of where you are. You have to know where you are to start. And I think this is not any leader's first rodeo and having to be in a space of building and driving. So I'm in that space now. I've been in that space many times before in terms of government. And so when you think about looking at your evaluating or scanning your current processes and procedures to see what works and does not work, you also have to think about then how do you issue a, a, time, a RFP in a timely fashion in terms of what type of technology that you want, what is the best, what's best priced, and what will be a fixable solution. You have to look at a customer service training packet. Government should run like Chick-fil-A. Everybody loves Chick-fil-A. Rarely do you ever have a bad experience because we are here to serve you. So many times when I was in my former capacity, I would get thank yous as director for calling back. And I could never, I'm, it's my job to call you back. Not only do you pay my salary, it's my fucking job. And I should take it seriously and I should be responsive to you in every way. And so everybody needs some, some really good training, a total overhaul in that, a scan of what we currently have and what we need to fix. And you also need to be able to uh, put in the space, think about what do you actually want to put out there in terms of technology, do a scan, issue an RFP, and again, transparency about timeline before you guys see implementation. In terms of policing, right, we, we have to get on one accord for how we view this. And so there was a time you did not need 300,000 police officers, and unfortunately, even though police are critical to our public safety, we're not seeing a real decline in violence either. So sometimes things are the appearance of safety. It doesn't mean that they're absolutely keeping you safe. So looking at how do we reinvest in community that hopefully gives people opportunity and access to things and making them feel a part of their democracy, a part of their community, would decrease crime. But in the meantime, when you're thinking about reimagining or re-envisioning re what that looks like for public safety, in real life, you do have crime. And in real life, until we all can get on one accord, people do want to see your officers. So you heard Justin many times throughout this election or this campaign talk about the fact that we have about, did it say 50% of officers in the office? They're not on the beat. You leverage what you already have in terms of your existing structure and you get them out there. If there are not enough officers, let's say, well, they all hate them. Oh, you support issue 24 and we retire it. Well, there's a way to fix that too. I come from East Cleveland, I told you guys that. And so many times when it wasn't enough resources or when enough, uh, wasn't enough police on the beat, you contact with your county sheriff's department. There's tons of sheriffs and all of them are not actively doing a whole lot <laughs> in terms of crime fighting anyway. So based off their, yeah, I'm gonna give them some props. I'm just joking right there. They, everybody has different roles, right? So the county sheriff's jurisdiction is the entire county. But that means that because they're not on a beat, you can absolutely write grants or you can leverage some of these, um, these incoming resources for other things and shift your other resources towards other focal points when you have some short-term opportunities to, uh, to support public safety in that way by contracting with your county um, pub public police department to support you um, in, in that capacity if you have a shortage. Or you can do sometimes what I've often seen leaders do. You can ask folk to stay. 
you can ask folks to stay on board, you know, throughout the duration of the time you have a plan for an additional year. You can offer increases and bonus because that's real time, real life as the elected official when you're in a servant in your role. I wish I knew a whole lot about the economic development. That's the space that I'm learning and growing in. But even our businesses, one of the things I tried to do at the Office of Reentry for formerly incarcerated persons who really wanted the opportunity to build wealth was offer the opportunity to scale your existing business or actually receive, um, receive grants because they couldn't get loans. It's a lot of parameters that prevent people from having, uh, with, the, with the criminal record, from getting a loan. So as a government, we can issue you grants. But the issue that we typically have when we do things like that, we don't have accountability. Or we have the wrong folk issuing the grants and the roles, and so you don't even know what to really, uh, what the person sh or entity should be responsive to government. What is your level of accountability? What results have you d produced with public resources? So having the right people to monitor that if we just, if Justin decided to move in that way and issue grants to support these smaller businesses to make sure that you have happy dog, but e equally having a partner down the street who stuck it out, it's critical, but there's a way to build and drive. And I don't think he's new to this. A lot of this is about delegating to the right persons, having the right leaders around you. This is not a one-person deal. It's all a collective leadership, and leaning into conflict is critical, and I think he has that skill set. Wow. <clears throat> Thank you very much. Thank you to our panel. Thank you, everybody, for coming. And um, 